Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the journey to transformation. Hello. Hello. It's been a while. Yeah. Slacker. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> we took some time off, people. So if you missed us last week and the week before, we released a, we re-released an episode because you know all the hot podcasters re-release. And then we took last week off. Yeah, we are promoting our own well-being. <laughs> For a change. <laughs> we're at, well, I am, I'll speak for myself, practicing what I preach. <laughs> yeah. A tiny bit by taking a week off, kind of. It was very hard because I felt very committed to the fact that we hadn't ever missed a week. But, you know, if I've learned anything over the last year doing this podcast, it's that context changes. That is true. And that sometimes you just got to be a white woman. Oh. <laughs> Practice self-care. <laughs> I love being a white woman. <laughs> Cool. Okay. So we've been doing this podcast for a year, right? Yes. Almost a year. Uh, over, over a year, year, in fact. Yeah, yeah. And it's the first time we took a week off. Uh, and prior to that, um, we did actually get an email from our longest listener. Yes, we um, did. Sanyukta, who has also been a guest on this podcast. Indeed. Sanyukta, we've got we've got something for you. I'm looking at it right now. I just need to pop it in some bubble wrap and chuck it in the mail. Yeah. So if you've also been listening to us and you want to get a little freebie, drop us an email. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. We have, should have left some Easter eggs in like earlier episodes or something. Oh yeah, that's right. You know what? I really love it if we like drop clues and like it built up to something. <laughs> Feels like it requires a degree of organization <laughs> I don't have right now. Okay. We've just taken a week off. Okay. We'll get to that in a year. I think we call that like the Taylor Swift model. Doesn't she do that? She puts like Easter eggs in <laughs> her songs right. and videos. And people like look for clues and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. As and when our fan base grows to that degree, then yeah, we can start doing that. Okay. Watch okay. Our listeners. Get ready. Yeah. Get ready fans. I feel like since we last spoke, which has been a really long time, a lot of things have happened in the international development humanitarian space. For example. For example, there was that big news story about cash-based programming and that organization that oh yeah was it give no. give more give some uh, give up was it cash-based pro- <laughs> give up probably it was probably it was give up give directly that lost nine hundred thousand dollars in democratic republic of congo on a like mobile cash fraud incident just a huge amount of money it's not that much money well, it is like in the context of how many people that might benefit over like a monthly period. In the in the context of how much the not-for-profit sector has lost due to fraud, bribery, facilitation payments, poor planning, poor programming, it is literally a baby's tear in a sea. Oh, okay, fine. But I mean, I suppose like it's a one-time incident, I guess, rather sure. than that accumulation yeah. that makes it feel like it's bigger. Yeah, that it's all one big whack that happened over the course of many years, yes. one overall program, then yeah, it's it's right. pretty significant. And the power in that as, a, as an organization that does cash-based programming for many international organizations, you know, like there's kind of a, a power situated in that in terms of how many organizations are involved, how much money. I think blockchain tech technology is would have resolved this issue very easily I'm surprised it's not more of that or maybe there is and people are just not talking about it there was a massive big i think because people didn't really understand how blockchain technology works and there's never been a really i think because it's just maybe a little bit hard to grasp what the digital ledger means that people are a bit shy about it but 
really helps you account for exactly where every single pound or pence goes. Yeah. Which then is such a shame that this hit that cash based programming function, right? Because then people might start questioning, okay, is it safe? Is it secure? Well, nothing's safe and secure. Like everything is prone to capture, but that doesn't change the legitimacy of it. And that's what I worry about is that people people will be shy about it because they don't want to do the work that it takes to make it a secure, robust system. They'll just go back to doing the same old stupid bullshit when we know a really good way of doing this is to empower people by giving them fucking money and letting them make their own decisions. And then a very similar story... Um, USAID suspended all food assistance to Ethiopia after uncovering a diversion scheme. I think even within the government, it actually went to authority level, I think. USAID and the UN, the World Food Programme. Got a quote here. A document by the Humanitarian Resilience Development Donor Group said that the scheme appeared to be orchestrated by federal and regional government of Ethiopia entities with military units throughout the country benefiting from humanitarian aid. I mean, how much of this is just kind of like what happens? It's not Ethiopia more generally, right? It's in Tigray where there's been like a pretty hefty conflict going on for the last two years. This is what happens in humanitarian interventions is that shit like this goes a bit wild. You're the more traditional humanitarian in this room. Yes, you're right. This has been going on for a very, very long time. And I read an article, I've read many articles, in fact, about how the UN has turned a blind eye to it on many occasions by the virtue of they're doing good elsewhere. You know, 90% will do good, will give all that money. And that 10% that trickles through or gets lost, well, what does it matter? Because most people are getting what they need. But in a humanitarian crisis, isn't that like who gives a shit? Yes, it all should be going to the right place. But when you're talking about needing to facilitate the transfer of vehicles carrying life-saving whatevers and you need to hive off a half a truckload to whoever the fact that people are in crisis like give up that half of it right like that's just that's like tax you know what i mean i guess i just have questions about like why you why you would say like let's suspend all food aid because some of it is being maybe there's a a threshold and it's like crossed into a threshold where they're like actually this is too much or a substantial amount and maybe they've followed the money and where it's going and actually it's contributing to something that's causing major harm so suppose like there is that things get diverted but where's it going to and what's that you're talking like? about like secondary markets and stuff but this yeah, is like, but this is food aid to be fair like it's not but i mean the bit that's diverted i mean food is currency right i get what you're saying but people need to eat right like so and if people are desperate enough to start stealing it then presumably that means something in the system is a bit broken but i th- also think like there are always going to be secondary markets where people are like taking that food and then selling it to other people you know what i mean like, yeah. you're always going to have that i guess yeah. that's why i don't understand why you would suspend it surely this isn't the first time this has happened and that it is accounted for in just like slippage, cost of doing business, whatever. But, you know, I don't know. I don't work for the USAID or the World Food Program. So. Yeah, we might need to get someone on the show to talk to us more about this. It seems like an interesting topic. Also, just seems like, really, are you going to punish like all of the people living in Tigray? Like if there is one kid who's not getting adequate nutrition because some fucker, like it can't be the whole of the population of Tigray, right? Like I just don't understand why you would suspend your food program entirely because there's been theft and if it's if it's that widespread it means that your dispersal mechanism was broken because all the people needed it right anyway these are things i noticed and felt i wanted to mention to you (laughs) (laughs) so yeah what are we talking about today we are talking about participatory action research Ooh, that's cool ask me why 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 not 
(laughs) (laughs) We are working on a big project, massive, huge, (laughs) and it's participatory action research. And we have gotten so much pushback on this project, (laughs) even though it's what we proposed and they accepted and is in our contract. So it's very interesting from my perspective, the fact that there's so much pushback. Why is it so difficult? Why are people fucking freaking out? Why did we propose it? The more that we do evaluations, the more I see the extractive nature of what we're doing, of what organizations are doing. And so participatory action research just feels like the most logical way forward. I feel the more and more that we do surveys and the more that we interview people, there's an other othering process happening. It's us and them. The more I feel this unease, the more we do it and the more we go down that road. You know, we said we were going to do participatory action research. We have talked about it a lot over the past six months or so, but I think there's something building in me in terms of like, this is the only way. And and it's Hello. kind of building in me a bit. So yeah, I think that's where I'm coming from for this episode. Look at your face. You've got fire in your eyes. <laughs> right. So what in the fook as participatory action research. I'm going to tell you now. Please tell me. Okay. So it's a research approach that places quite a lot of emphasis on collaboration, reflection, and social change. And it involves researchers, evaluators, whatever, and participants working together to examine a particular situation or an action in order to change and improve it. It's moving beyond this sort of traditional structures of I go in, I research, I research you I look at you and then I leave. So it's kind of breaking down that dynamic of like, I'm an observer of your situation and bringing everybody together in the same space. So how we've used it in a few different ways is, so if you think about like participant-led approaches or um, I've done some child-led evaluations, if you think about it from that perspective, it's really about bringing the people who we are brought in to understand better into the spaces to help us understand better from their perspective. They'll make decisions that it could be a range of different things from, you know, what evaluation criteria to prioritize, what questions to ask, who to ask it of. They'll take part in the analysis, if not lead the analysis. So it's like, it can be quite a range of things that people might do in a participatory, in participatory action research. So those are some of the ways that we've done it. And I think the core bit there is like, it's people working together. It's researchers, evaluators, and participants, rights holders, citizens, whatever you want to call these particular groups working together and and so I think that's the core central point and surrounding it then you've got like different tools and ways of doing it or actioning it yeah it just feels very logical so what are the superpowers it's sort of in the name a little bit the participatory action research bit in that the people you're doing the research with if it's citizens of a particular program are the decision makers and action takers in the process so they're not as you say having something done to them they're for facilitating and engaging with and making decisions about a process that is affecting them. And I just like the way I'm using the word them, but I'm not really sure how else to go around Mm. that word right now. The strength there is that it's a process of engagement for everybody. And I think there is a lot of opportunity for reflection there. I think what happens in research and evaluation is you have a researcher, you go in, you extract information, you leave. If it becomes an engaging process where everyone's working together, the learning is generated across the whole process. It's not just in that 45 minute interview or not just in that half an hour discussion. It's actually then a process of learning and discussing. And that's just more meaningful 
meaningful for anyone. I like the fact that it's about something being different. It's about facilitating change in some way. That's the action part for me. Because, you know, the thing that we often get stuck in is we go in, we do evaluations, we do formative research, and then nobody fucking does anything with it. Yeah, in a drawer. Which sucks. <laughs> Whereas participatory action research, you're almost bringing the, the research subjects into a space to hold you to account for it. So that's another kind of benefit that I quite like. Not necessarily that that always happens, but it does bring, you know, we did a some participatory action research quite recently and two of the participant evaluators were in the key findings presentation and were able to say, yeah, this is my perspective. This is this, this is this. They were sitting in that space alongside us. You've talked before about doing research in communities and never being able to, you can never afford to go back to that community and let them know what happened. By drawing on participant evaluators, you can kind of do that. You're, you're also leaving that knowledge creation in the community yeah, because that participant evaluator is in interviewing other people in the community and if they're already there they're bringing that knowledge back with them although I think there are some weaknesses and things that need to be assessed not weaknesses but there are some challenges that need to be addressed there particularly depending on the topic but I think there is then a much greater chance of whatever has been found or some discussions that have had stay in the community and potentially community-based solutions are drawn. People sometimes are like oh but don't you need the participants to have like a, be college educated and like have whatever? No, because like the fundamental principles around what participant evaluators do in the process of understanding something is the same. Like, yes, you need some support around like ethical interactions with people just from like a very practical standpoint. How should you be engaging with people? How should you be talking to people? But that's not got anything to do with what your educational background is or what your technical skill is, even though a lot of us would say we make our money off of our technical skills. But it's really bringing that process down to a more egalitarian level of like that everyone can do it. It's like a great democratizing force in yeah. that bringing those, you're describing skills that get brought back into the community in terms of like critical question asking and things like that, I'm guessing. Yeah, but but also the content of what's spoken about. And that's why I'm hesitating a bit because I think there are some things that need to be in place there. But in a lot of ways, the content from a broader sense of like what's been discussed and what people need will will remain in the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But yes, definitely the skill sets as well in terms of like, yeah, critical questions, reflections. Yeah, and I think that if you start to see that these dynamics get broken down with participant evaluators, for example, asking questions, being critical of organizations who are implementing programming in their communities. I think what it does is it creates, it starts to sow the seeds for dynamics that aren't so patriarchal or Mm. colonial, right? Because now communities feel like they can critically feed back based on their own experiences when sometimes that's not really the case Because if I'm giving you something and me continuing to give it to you is predicated on your continuing to be happy with it, then you're going to tell me it's sexy and wonderful, even if perhaps there's room for improvement, because there's like a massive power dynamic in that. As you were talking then, and as we've been talking, I've been ticking over my head is the participant evaluators is is a seed or a starting point to addressing, as you said, the, the colonial structures. And then beyond that, is that not then taking participant evaluators and evaluating us? 
yeah. you know, and, and having a group of evaluators from whatever country you are working in or community and saying, okay, now evaluate us or, or look at what we're doing and tell us what you think. That has to then be the next step. But us mean us as evaluators. Both, I mean, the organization and other evaluators. Well, that's the goal is that they are doing the evaluations. The role of us, you and I, is to facilitate a process so that there's some clear steps or documenting the process or helping to harmonize and create consistency if it's a multi-country approach as it is for one of the projects that we started talking about this with in a perfect world the participant evaluators are doing everything so that it really is from their perspective how they want to evaluate and adjudicate the performance of the commissioning agency probably what then needs to happen is the ngos or the international organizations get cut out the process right eventually and then the communities just like take the money from the donor and do whatever they want with it Woo! yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh wait how do, how do we earn money then <laughs> we'll find something else to do there's always going to be something else to do. <laughs> anyway, we just solved the a problem of the entire sector. Moving on. Participatory action research has such potential to have like real lasting. Like I think about it really as a, quite a social justice, a social justice and activist way of doing our work. I think people have a lot of criticisms about it. And I think one of it is about that, that closeness of the feedback. Exactly that. Talk to me. So... If you hire a participant evaluator from a particular community and then they're going around interviewing their peers, there's a position of power that they're put in with the information they might be told. Once the project's ended, that information remains and is used for what, I suppose? Sure. However... My my response to that would be, I'd hope communities would be talking to people about what they want to anyway, like maybe talking in community groups or other established groups, right? Perhaps where this becomes a bit more of a, an issue is maybe if it's a topic of like gender-based violence or religious extremism or something where it's a sensitive topic no matter where you are in the world because it has implications for certain groups of people in terms of what they might talk about. What you're doing is you're echoing some of the things that people have said to us about why they don't want to do it and why they're so scared. You'd have these things anyways, as you said, right? I think my point is, is that the way that you'd structure an interview or a focus group discussion and the things that you'd ask... If they're about particularly sensitive topics like this, anyway, you wouldn't, no one's going to get that answer. Not you, not me. Nobody's getting that answer, right? Mm. It's the way that you structure the questions. It's the way that you, it's the tools that you make available to participant evaluators in order to find the most comfortable way to ask the question and for a respondent to answer the question. You know, because if somebody wants to talk to me about gender-based violence, I'm not telling anybody that. Like, you can fuck right off. But if somebody asks me about how I feel if I were to read a vignette, for example, and how if I put myself in the perspective of that person, how I might feel, then you're using my response as a potential proxy for how I might feel if that happened to me without necessarily, without meaning I don't, I don't, it's not assumed that I would disclose something like that. So it's about the tools that you make available to the the participant evaluators versus like... Definitely. And I also think we we kind of, uh, we're brushing over the nuances within any community, right? So there may be women's groups and one of the participant evaluators could be a woman who speaks to women sure. who are part of a group that meet 
you know, and we might work with a man who is a farmer and he's a man, a man <laughs> who, whose job is agriculture and he has people he knows in the agricultural space, right? So I think like there are nuances in any community about who talks to who about what. You've got what. such gendered assumptions about jobs. I know, sorry, <laughs> fuck, I don't know. <laughs> a woman who just sits around chatting with other women and a man who works in a oh, field. Oh God, that was terrible. I'm telling everyone. <laughs> you already have. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. my point is that like there are nuances nuances in the community about who talks to who about what so I think that you could also build on those communication channels that already exist and the trust that may already be there yeah I'm reminded of an example when I was in South Sudan it was um, a DFID funded project and some researchers had come from John Hopkins University and we were working with them and it was about gender-based violence what works it was called the project or the program like how best to gender-based violence someone? no like prevent or okay. so, you know <laughs> you know you know people used to always put like gbv when actually what they meant it was preventing, preventing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway so we went to this community and there was this community leader it was so weird this whole setup it was like me a white woman another white woman three other white women five of us in this like community group with like this leader and his two other leaders sitting at a table at the front. And then like, I'd say a hundred people from the community in front of them. And they were talking to them about what's happening in the community. And one of the researchers from John Hopkins was just like, so is there any gender-based violence in your community? And the guy obviously was like, no, no, never. Of course not. And the woman looked shocked by that. And I was like, you can't be shocked by that. There's no way he's going to admit in front of all these people or even you as a white researcher who's just dropped into his community. Yeah. Oh, the whole thing was such a shit show. (laughs) Johns Hopkins, you're getting put on blast. Maybe we should get rid of that. No, leaving it in. But What year was this? What were the names? (laughs) I just remember thinking this whole setup was so just not professional, not conflict sensitive in any way it's a good example of like what you can expect people to talk about in front of who um and when and where and even if that was a one-to-one with the white researcher i still don't think he would have admitted it do you know how you would have gotten the answer from a participatory approach (laughs) (laughs) right the makeup of a participant evaluator really does matter when you're talking about like addressing and responding actively to gender and power dynamics thinking about like who's asking the question and of who and that's why selecting participant evaluators really matters like what you're doing and and then how the like the options in terms of the questions that you're asking so as a consultant our job is to facilitate a process where people can like comfortably engage in dialogue yeah but if you think that your participant evaluators are going to be pulling up shit that they don't talk about in their communities you're fucking full of it because i've lived in small towns i've lived in big towns it doesn't fucking matter everybody knows everybody else's shit yes exactly and that level of like knowledge is such an advantage because not only is there a view of what's happening but also what's coming up or what events might get in the way or other dynamic that you know we as international evaluators especially will never understand i just think you're getting a better sense of what's real not like a a fake setup yeah we've had 
participant evaluators do interesting things in conversations. So they'll say, they'll say, you know, tell me about your experience. And the person will tell them about their experience. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, I had a similar experience. It's shit, isn't it? And then they'll kind of go Mm -hmm. off into this conversation. And yes, to a certain degree, you can say, well, doesn't that feel like a bit leading? But if they're reinforcing each other's experiences, and if it's done in a way that isn't leading, it's really just about bringing the conversation into a space of candor, ultimately, because now I'm not telling you something that like you might be surprised to hear. I'm talking to you about something that you also share in the experience with. And so it's about kind of bridging. Whereas if I'm talking to you about a shitty experience that I've had and you've not shared that experience with me, then it's a little bit harder to maybe you don't take as much time to explain the nuance of why it's challenging. And when we're talking about the type of research that we do, we're talking about complex social dynamics and nuance matters. Yeah. Participant evaluators will work with researchers or whoever to, you know, design the approach or to apply non-judgment, non-opinion, non-opinion? So, you you know, perhaps hold their own thoughts through a discussion. But I think what you can do is kind of have a a point of separation where this discussion is about other people's thoughts. But let's also have spaces where it's about your thoughts. So you've got these kind of dedicated separate spaces. Mm. People know about them. And so it doesn't feel like they are not having a space to express their own thoughts. Yeah. And you create that space for them, um, I think is a good way to manage that. I like that. I wrote it in the Inception Report. Okay, calm down. <laughs> I, Have promise, you read I, it? I promise I read the Inception Report. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you make that delineation clear. Yeah. I appreciate the f- critiques on participatory action research, one of which is really hard. Like even when we're facilitating conversations around how do you select people? How do you select people? Okay. It depends. (laughs) (laughs) It's really context specific. So this is a multi-country project that we're working on. And so everybody wants to have standard criteria for participant researchers, but you can't because it has to be done on balance, I think about what it looks like and what makes most sense. And that could vary from, you might have one community right next to another community and you might take a different approach for each of those. One of the things that we've talked about is there's some standard criteria. You're across the whole looking for balance in gender identity or expression. You're looking for a balance in terms of seniority or community roles. You know, if everybody's got community leaders, then that is likely going to have an influence on how people respond, Um, especially if you're in patriarchal communities or where that role, people tend to defer to that role. I wouldn't be doing like a focus group discussion that's facilitated by Sadiq Khan, the mayor Mm. of London, and feel like I could necessarily be like, yeah, there's too many fucking potholes on the road, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Fix it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, like you'd probably say things in a slightly different way just because there's a power dynamic that exists. Yes. Not that Sadiq Khan has power over me. You don't. Well, he doesn't have power over potholes, clearly. Clearly. I broke two tires on my bike at the same time because of a fucking pole. Oh, yeah, have you seen the images of them, the memes? No. People have gone wild for it. Sadiq owes me some fucking tires. <laughs> people have like, you know, created Photoshop things where people are fishing in them, swimming in them, like <laughs> all sorts of things. <laughs> nice. Anyway, yeah, yeah. sidetrack. That's Sadiq. But you see there's like a power dynamic that exists. So like when you're selecting participant evaluators, you have to think about how that dynamic might influence people. And you have to think about the groups that people are interacting with. So who am I talking to? Is it going to be comfortable for me? Is it going to be comfortable to the respondent? Like depending on our unique positions, right? Like, is it going to be, am I going to have a very comfortable conversation as like a woman of color with a like older white man? Like, am I going to have 
the same. What's my experience going to be like? Are we going to be able to, what does that look like? Yeah. And you can't know all of these things, but you can account for some things that might exist based on talking to people. That would be questions. so interesting, actually. If you, if you were interviewed by a white man and then another woman of color and then somebody different, like over a period of time to see if your answers <laughs> changed. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I bet they would. Um, I mean, you can probably see that to be fair. Like if you did like a longitudinal study, look for a longitudinal study, figure out who the researchers were and then you could see okay side hustle side hustle side hustle but then depends on what it was yeah exactly um you could okay. look at that you could look at word usage like like frequency of di- different Ooh, words kind of words yeah you can Max look at, is good at how that. long a person spoke for because yeah. i got nothing to say to white boys <laughs> <laughs> yes you could set up like different metrics of measure different measures and yeah. then check it over time Ooh, i don't want to do that hire us to do that <laughs> No one else cares about this except for you, me, and Sanyukta. That's it. <laughs> you know what? I do want someone to hire us to do an evaluation with no evaluation questions. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. I want someone to hire us just to say, just do an evaluation, go. And then we just like, the opening question is tell us what you want to tell us. Okay. And that's, that's it. That's not dissimilar from when we're just like, when people don't actually know what they want. It's not because they are actively choosing not to have evaluation questions. It's because they just don't know what to do. <laughs> But there's always the terms of reference. So? Um, Like the terms of reference just needs to be a blank page. Yeah. Should we do that? Yeah, I'd have respect for that. Call us. Okay. Um, Sorry. If you want our respect. (laughs) That's how you'll get mine. The the people who can afford us are like, we don't care. (laughs) Anyway. Some of the models that we've talked about is having communities select participant evaluators based on here's some criteria who might be good for this. Give me a few names and then having us kind of essentially go through and make sure that there's like a fair distribution across all participant evaluators so that that spread is accounted for. Yeah, I suppose you've got to be careful here, haven't you, that over time, the same people are not always selected to be participant evaluators. Like if this approach really does become a bit more staple, you know, bearing in mind that in lots of places, there are often um, many organizations working in the same communities and even having the same beneficiaries, right? Do you know what I'm going to say to that? No. We already do that with enumerators. Everybody's oh, yeah, the same enumerator, yeah. the same consultant. Everybody's got the same. That's so true. We're already doing that. I thought you were going to say um, everyone should just do the same survey or the same questionnaire instead. Oh, I mean, that would be helpful. I mean, that would be helpful to align some of these things. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not going to get aligned on anything in a, for a while, but we do that anyways. What about paying people or compensation for being a participant evaluator? Tell me about that because that's Mm. complicated and we've had questions about how that works. You got to pay. You got to give them that money. Why? Because they're taking their precious time. And I also think you should pay respondents, to be honest, because they're taking time. I don't think you're paying them for their answers. You're paying them for their time or you're giving them some. So like when I did my PhD research, I didn't pay people to respond. But when they finished the interview, I just gave them a small thing of like dates and nuts and drinks and stuff because I wanted them to know that I valued the time that they gave me. You're recognizing the fact that you stole somebody's life, that they'll never, ever, ever get back that time. And you want to be thankful for that. Participant evaluators, I view them as part of an evaluation team that provide really, really unique fucking insights. Mm. Um, When you get strong participant evaluators who are like, 
and you're a strong facilitator of that process, you get insights that you'd, you'd never, you just would never get them on your own. And so I think that it's about recognizing the unique contribution that they bring. I don't think it's attached to things like, I've had people say, I like, go, oh, but what about like literacy rates and education and all of that stuff? And I don't really care about those things because wanting to know and, and communicating, you can, you can find those don't require you to have a degree. And in some ways, I think they might be barriers to really being able to access some of the nuance that we would be looking for. We do a couple of things. So in terms of compensation or honorariums, we will either do cash in the same way that we would somebody who's on our team anyways. So in the same way that you and I get paid, we would pay somebody else. Sometimes it's not safe to just be handing over wads of money to people. Safe is defined by that person. But there's also a situation where perhaps it might interact with some of the projects we've done have been with people seeking asylum or refugees and that impacts their uh, status in countries, for example. So in that context, it is not appropriate for them and they like they have preferred not to receive cash, in which case you would do something that is the same value. So groceries or whatever, or phone cards, combination of phone cards, groceries, whatever, mm-hmm. or courses, uh, access to online courses or something like that. So that's the only thing that we've kind of said, but that it's up to the person to determine how they want to be compensated. And I guess they're being transparent about that, right? So we're hiring participant evaluators and they're being compensated so that like people in the community know that and are aware of that. So it doesn't cause perhaps later down the line some unexpected conflict or, you know, people are like, oh, you got paid for something. Yeah. For example, although I do think that there's a tendency for everyone to assume that things will cause conflict in this way when people, as you say, are very willing to pay enumerators yeah. who are quite often from, from the community. <laughs> yeah. Like you were going to pay an enumerator to do this anyways, just pay one that's going to give you really unique insights and perhaps is going to be able to connect with, yeah. with your communities in more targeted ways. But it also means you have a duty of care, right, for them. Yes. Right? Because you're going to leave and they're going to be in their communities. So don't fuck people over with like wild data collection processes or things that are like really onerous. Or one thing that we are terrible at in this sector is remembering that enumerators consultants based in situ they still live there even if we're international and we get to fuck off and go wherever else like we don't really pay enough attention to what shit we leave behind by virtue of the way that we design our evaluations or our research like imagine you have enumerators who like need to go and do household surveys and the household surveys are like six days long and people are just like oh we fucking hate you like get out of here yeah, yeah. and then that same person comes back you know and a month later you end up creating the conditions for resentment toward that person because they are in fact like an extension of you and your shitty practice so definitely you know lean research people lean research yeah and i think that is um a really good reminder of like the participant evaluator is both in the community but the moment they take up that role they are connected to and an extension of the research the client whoever you are so they are straddling two things or two roles if you like indeed Okay, um, so any final remarks about what is Patriot Action Research? Do it. It's hard, but it's worth it. I think we've only kind of touched on like maybe a couple of criticisms of it because I don't want to talk about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's worthwhile, right? Like it is a democratizing process. It is a great way of redistributing power. If you are committed to a participatory approach and you're not doing participatory action research, you can fuck off you're missing a massive area. Yeah, I agree with you. And I just think it's the 
It's such a good example of challenging the structures that exist. We have to approach it with an open mind, like all of this objectivity, bias, neutrality, impartiality. I don't know, all of these things that get thrown around in an evaluation, quality, expertise, knowledge, all of this that's kind of bound us to a technical framework. Let's just like move those to one side, open our mind and say, well, what is objectivity and bias in the context of working with citizens? And does it really matter? We all come. With, with, with so many past experiences that shape our understanding of data and research and information. Let's accept it, acknowledge it, look at how information might be changed because of it, but then keep going with it. I just think that these are excuses after a while. And I've been there. I've been that technical monitoring and evaluation person who's like, yeah, but there's so much bias in this data. You know, well, so what? Like we all have it, acknowledge it and move forward with it. It's like HPV. We all have a we virus. All have it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, th- I think there is a real kind of like structure movement that this um, participatory action research can help us with. I think that's a great thing to leave on. Great. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> um, and we'll be back next week with something, something exciting. Um, so next week we'll be back and we're going to discuss conflict sensitivity next week. Ooh la la. Um, something we've been working on in a lot of our projects. So time to delve into what that really means. So... Until next week, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this has been the journey to transformation. Au revoir. Au revoir. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.